Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today, we've got our live audience from the Upgrade Collective in the house. We've got lots of people in because this is going to be a really powerful episode. If you'd like to be in the live audience, be able to ask questions, go to OurUpgradeCollective.com and join my private membership group where I'm teaching all of my books and all of my knowledge with a team of coaches, super structured, answer all your questions and teach you how to be bulletproof. Today is an episode that I've wanted to do for a long time, and it's hard to get this guy on as a guest. He's a director of the Longevity Institute at USC, the Leonard Davis School of Gerontology, director of the Longevity and Cancer Program at the IFOM, uh, the Italian Foundation for Cancer Research. And he was named by Time in 2018 as one of the 50 most influential people in healthcare for his research on fasting mimicking diets as a way to improve health and prevent disease. He wrote a famous book called The Longevity Diet. I'm talking about none other than Professor Walter Longo. Walter, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Good to be on it. I've I've called you multiple times uh, when I'm talking about fasting and answering questions about it and all as sort of the the godfather of fasting. And one of the things that that one of the reasons I say that is that you've spent so many years looking at fasting way ahead of the curve. Why did fasting come into your lens so early compared to almost everyone else alive? Where did the original inspiration come from? Yeah, I think two things mostly. Uh, UCLA, so I went to UCLA because Roy Walford was there. Right? So in Roy Walford, back in the days, in the early 90s, um, he was in Biosphere 2, and he was uh, basically doing the first uh, um, human color restriction experiment, and he was a, a pathologist, a medical doctor at UCLA, and at the time, he was the most famous uh, person in the world for, let's say, nutrition and longevity, right, and, and aging. And so... Certainly, uh, Roy was a big influence, um, and then uh, the other part was the uh, the lab, the other lab that I worked on at UCLA, which was uh, first Steve Clark and then John Valentine. And with Steve Clark, I worked on starving bacteria, and with John Valentine, I worked on starving yeast. You know, and and I don't know, I, I was interested in that maybe because of the world for the um, influence, uh, and so uh, every time I got an opportunity, uh, I was really infatuated by the. Uh, by the starvation and the effects, of course, that I was observing early on. So the bacteria, you starve them, they become long-lived or much longer-lived, and they become very resistant. And the yeast, you starve them, same thing, long-lived and and very resistant to all kinds of toxins. And so when I saw bacteria and yeast responding the same way and then connecting with Roy Walford, he was not working on fasting. He was working on calorie restriction. But... um, I think you know. I made the, the the connection, and and I knew this was a very powerful, very powerful, um, three billion years old, uh, um, you know, function that uh, was poorly understood. And keep in mind, everybody was making fun of this. I right? read the time, right? Everybody, oh, yeah. everybody thought it was a joke. Like, well, why would you possibly work on starving bacteria and yeast? It's just the most boring thing ever. So that was the attitude back in the, in those days. Do you like to be seen more as a longevity researcher or as a fasting researcher? Yeah, I think longevity, uh, I, and, and not just longevity, but uh, uh, what I call youth span and juventology, right? So how, how do you stay young? Um, and then once you 
cannot stay young anymore. Once a youth span period is over, uh, how do you stay healthy? And that's the health span program. Uh, fasting is really, uh, in my mind, is the, probably the most powerful way to uh, reset um, and uh, help regenerate, but also help uh, clear uh, junk and damage that, that is accumulated. How, how often do you fast? I don't, I mean, long fast, uh, I mean, f- first of all, I always say, I always start by saying fasting doesn't mean anything, right? Uh, fasting is like saying eating, uh, yeah, how, right. long do you, uh, how often do you eat? Um, so I think the, uh, the, the answer is every day, right? So every day I do 12 hours, about 12 hours of fasting and, and 12 hours of, of feeding. And then uh, maybe once a year I would do a, uh, a fasting making diet, a five-day fasting making diet. Sometimes I, I may do it twice a year, depending on on the need. But um, mostly, I uh, I my diet. I you know I follow my my diet. The, what I discovered in the book, the longevity diet. And so I think we're seeing a lot of evidence in the lab that you know for the very few that follow this very uh, precise type of diet, uh, the fasting making diet doesn't have to be done. Uh, as much, right? So the average person may do it three or four times a year, um, but I think that for somebody that has an ideal diet, uh, maybe once or twice a year is sufficient. Okay, so if you eat the right stuff, then once or twice a year you do a longer fast, and it's permissible to have something during the fast as long as you're getting your macros right. Yeah, it's, uh, because it's like, you're still maintaining autophagy. Yeah, it's not just uh, eating the right stuff. I think it's the timing, is the frequency. Yeah. Um, you know, is whatever else you do, you know, the exercise, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it, it's lifestyle, mostly nutrition, but not only nutrition. And so, yeah, if you do all the right things, then, uh, then probably uh, probably that, that's sufficient. Yeah. A lot of the research I've seen says that 12 hours is the very minimum effective length of a fast for increasing ketosis over time. Dr. Murad from Australia has done some studies on alternate day, 12-hour intermittent fasting and seen slight increases in ketones. But a lot of the, the research I've seen lately is looking more at 16 hours without food. That seems to be where a lot of people end up and occasionally going longer. Like I, for me, it's been 24 hours since I ate anything. And I just, I'm not hungry. And I guess I'm going to force myself to eat because I don't want to do a two-day fast. But uh, why 12, not 14? Is, is there a specific reason for that? Yes, there is. So so if you look at, I, I always say, I could never find a negative study on the 12 and 12, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I found many negative studies on the 16-hour. Um, and also... Um, you know, one of them, multiple of them are having to do with gallstone formation, you know, people that fast for 16, 18 hours a day tend to have twice as, uh, as much uh, uh, gall uh, bladder operations as people that fast for 10 or 12 hours. And, uh, and also, um, I'm concerned about the now four or five studies showing that people that skip breakfast uh, live shorter, right? And, and they have more cardiovascular disease and now a new study showing more cancer. So... You know, of course, these are epidemiological studies, are associations. Uh, but at the same time, I always say, if you know, most people that skip breakfast will say fast for 14, 16, 18 hours. If that was so beneficial, why isn't counterbalancing whatever negative uh, that may, these people may be doing? So maybe they're not living shorter because of the uh, fasting. But why is the fasting, if it's positive, not making them live normal? Right, and that's a concern, yeah. right? 
it, it, it's always a question, you know, are people who skip breakfast, skipping breakfast because they're too tweaked or too busy or you know, going to work or they're having a cigarette? Uh, and I think they account for cigarette smoking usually in, much, in most of these, but is it an unhealthy lifestyle choice because there are people who aren't caring for themselves or is it conscious fasting? Yeah, and so my point is, hard to tell. why is the fasting not helping them against whatever other bad lifestyle they might have, right? Yeah. That's my point. So that you figure that if it was so powerful to do 16 hours a day, then it should take care of it and they'll live at least a normal life. They wouldn't have a shorter life, right? The concern is when you see shorter, right? So yeah, that, that's, right. that's when you say, hmm, that's very surprising, right? If it was so good for you, why don't we see uh, them at least living normal? Got it. And it could be that if they, um, if they ate breakfast, they'd be even worse off, but we don't really know because of epidemiology. It's, it's a tough one. Right. So yeah, yeah, yeah I, exactly. Yeah. We don't know, but, but the question yeah. is, um, it's a fair question. You know, how much you, you want to risk, uh, um, considering these studies, considering the gallbladder uh, operation, considering also that most centenarians don't do 16, 18 hours. So this is why in my book, I always talk about a five pillar approach and try to get the common denominator. What is the common between all? What do they all support, right? So if you look at centenarians, yeah. 12 hours is very common. Is there a difference in the length of fast that's appropriate based on your age? Um, well, again, it depends on, on, on what fasting you're talking about. Um, it, it, I think that the, uh, the five-day fasting-making diet, as we're uh, testing clinically, uh, we think it's appropriate until age 65 to 70. Uh, then it does not mean it's not appropriate anymore, let's say, to do it three times a year. We now have a, a, an ongoing clinical trial on Alzheimer's patients, and, um, and so they're fine. So far, they're, they're, they're doing okay. They're doing fine. Uh, so, you know, they're much older than 65. Some of them are in their 80s. Um, so it doesn't mean you, they cannot do it, but right now we just don't have enough data uh, to do this long fast uh, in, in the 70 and older, let's say. Um, then if you're talking about intermittent fasting, again, you know, if you do 12 hours, it's perfectly fine. Uh, there is really no reason to, to, to stop at any age. Uh, in fact, that might be very healthy even for a 100-year-old person. Uh, if you're looking at other forms of fasting, um, I think I would put it in the same category. Let's say that somebody does uh, two days a week or one day a week. I would put it in the same category as the fasting making diet, meaning that you know, to do one day a week of, of a long, of let's say a 24-hour fast, uh, uh, I would not recommend that to somebody who's 75 years old. Um, I, I agree with, with that assessment. I, I found one person who's 81 who's been doing uh, about a, a 14 to 16-hour fast every day for, for 59 years. <laughs> she does not look like she's 81. Her brain is totally sharp. Her name's Margaret Paul. She was just on, on the show does a lot of work more around uh, emotional and psychological trauma. But, you know, when you look at the few people we can find who've practiced it, it seems that there's something going on that's, that's really beneficial. Right, right. But, but if, you, if you, I mean, we, we're starting to think of a standard or an FDA-like standard, right? Yeah. So then if you have an FDA-like standard, if you think about that, it's like saying, you know, if you give a vaccine to a few people, they've done pretty well, uh, can we give it to the whole world, right? Uh, no, well, we need uh, seventy thousand people, right? Yeah, so, we do. So, yeah, th that's the same. The same is true here, and unfortunately, the the epidemiological studies when you do seventy thousand people or seven hundred thousand people, they show a shorter lifespan, right? So, uh, for for the biggest group that we can find doing sixteen hours, that's why you have to you have to say, hmm, wait a minute, you know, what am I? 
even though it could be beneficial to a lot of people, what if it's detrimental to even more people than it is beneficial to? And this is very typical for most of the traditional things. Now, if you look at something that's very old, it usually tends to do lots of good for, for in, in one sense and lots of bad, right? And that's why they, they never quite stick around. Um, and so, yeah, then we need to find, how do you get, and this is calorie restriction, for example. Say, mm-hmm. Calorie restriction that, my, that Roy Walford used to study has been around for 100 years. And if you look at it now, uh, and they used to do, say, fantastic things about calorie restriction back in the 70s. Uh, how many people do calorie restriction right now? Almost nobody. Like and, 20. Uh, <laughs> almost nobody, right? So, but uh, why? Well, because even the monkey studies after Richard Weindruck, somebody else that was in Roy Walford's uh, lab, he did the 25-year-long study. He realized that, you know, there is lots of positive and lots of negative. So if you look at cholesterol, blood pressure, uh, fasting glucose, amazing results, right? And then the monkey may drop that after anesthesia. And you're thinking, wow, how is it possible? Uh, what happened that in calorie restriction that makes somebody so sensitive to anesthesia? But uh, yeah, so, so the age-related disease cause of that were much affected by the long, lifelong calorie restriction. But then the overall survival was not that much improved. And, and it, when they did the same study at the NIA, the National Institute on Aging, it wasn't improved at all, right? There was no difference in, uh, um, in survival. Yeah, so the, that's a, the type of thinking that, that we, we try to put together to then come up with what's very safe for people and at the same time can make them live to 110 healthy. Do you think we're going to get to the point where you look at your genes or you look at your gut bacteria or some mix of markers from the blood and go, oh, for you, you should do X amount of fasting or this is your ideal eating window. Is that even conceivable? Oh, it's very much conceivable. And I think no more than five year, uh, five year uh, ahead of us, uh, five years ahead of us. So yeah, absolutely. Um, that's going to be, that's already done for, you know, should you eat this or that? Um, and so I will imagine soon enough, we'll have enough data uh, associating or correlating a certain profile uh, of microbiota with the, uh, the response or lack thereof to fasting. So we're already collecting this, for example, for uh, multiple sclerosis trial, we're collecting microbiota. The cancer trial, we're collecting microbiota. The um, Alzheimer trial, we're collecting uh, microbiota. Uh, so yeah, we uh, the IBD trial, I'm sure uh, we're also doing that. So I think it's just a matter of time before we have enough data that we can say, the non-responders happen to have this profile, um, you know, and, and at some point I think artificial intelligence is going to have to uh, help us do it because it's just going to be lots of data that are extremely difficult to, uh, to analyze the classical way. Are there private companies that you've seen that are working on, on that problem or is this all university and government funded? Uh, I know I don't want to mention the name of the company because I don't know if they, they want me to mention it, but I know even years ago we were approached by a private company uh, looking for the data. So I will assume there are many already that are looking at intermittent fasting, periodic fasting, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and they're starting to collect data that eventually they will analyze uh, um, to distinguish the, the responders from the non-responders. Well, I'm looking forward to that day. I would love to be able to sit down and look at someone's you know, stack of hormones and thyroid and everything else, plug it into an AI engine and say, you know, eat for X amount this day and maybe even what to eat. And I, I know there's a bunch of people working on it. So I was hoping you'd tell us the coolest ones, but I understand there's uh, NDAs in it, place and all. 
Yeah, no, and I don't know if they have, I don't think they have it as a service yet, right? So I don't think they're at the point that, uh, that they can make, that they can uh, give it to the public. So, uh, yeah, so that's the main reason why I don't want to mention it. If I okay. knew it was uh, publicly available, I would mention it, but I, I, I'm not sure. I don't think it is. I, I get it. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't throw a company in hot water with thousands of people calling them all at once right. <laughs> when you can't buy what they have. But when, when you know, send me a note and I'll, I'll definitely yeah. talk with them. What did you learn from yeast that translated best into human aging in your labs? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, everything we do is based on yeast research. Yeah, so I think uh, we, we forget that this is as old as we are, uh, meaning like uh, we, we all come from the same organisms and, uh, and we've evolved in, in parallel with the yeast. And so... Uh, they, uh, we obey the same rules they obey. Uh, we have the same, what's called force of natural selection. Um, and so, uh, for example, uh, all our work that we do on cancer started in yeast and the discovery that, um, the, the genes that were, if you starve a yeast, uh, the, uh, the same genes that are proto-oncogenes. So the ones that are involved in cancer are the one that prevent the protection, right? So the, remember earlier I said, the yeast you starve it becomes very protected of all kinds of toxins. Well, if you have an oncogene, which most cancers have in, in them, uh, that oncogene prevents the protection. Right. So, so that's the first observation was well, if now by having this type of gene like RAS, if you have RAS that is always on, and if that prevents the the cancer cell from becoming uh, resistant, then this is a way to distinguish all cancer cells from all normal cells. So all normal cells, including bacteria, by the way, will respond to starvation in a coordinated manner and will go into the starvation response mode. The only mm. diso- disobedient uh, uh, cells are going to be the cancer cells. Right? So, yeah, so then, then, you know, then it will all the way to clinical trials and now even successful clinical trials. Uh, so I think everything. So we discovered the Taurus kinase pathway in yeast, uh, uh, and that was the first, uh, you know, now everybody talks about rapamycin and, and uh, TOR in aging. Uh, mm. Well, you know, we discovered that thanks to yeast. And, and, and when we did screen, it was a, a screen, meaning that um, we basically mutated all the genes in the DNA of the yeast, right? It's all, all, you know, say most of the 6,000. And then we, we asked the question, which mutations make the yeast live longer? And one thing kept coming up, and it was something called SCH9. And SCH9 is what... TOR regulates, and you know that's what rapamycin, the, the drug rapamycin that is now so famous for aging research, is blocking, right? So, uh, so there was not something that we even thought about. It was the yeast that told us, focus on this, because this is the most important thing that you can block to extend life. And in fact, once we combine the mutation in, in that gene and in the, so I call it, I call that the, the protein pathway, the amino acid pathway. And there's a sugar pathway, which is PKA. So once we have two mutations in these two genes in yeast, and then we also starve them, we extend the lifespan by tenfold, right? So we make, we make the organism 10 times longer lived than, than, uh, than the normal ones, right? So, uh, yeah, so again, uh, um, yeast pointed to all the right directions. And today, you know, like you said, mTOR and rapamycin are, are all the rage. And certainly that original discovery that you had 
um, led uh, longtime listeners have heard me talk about uh, you know tripling down things that suppress mTOR so it can come back up later, like you know very well fasting and coffee and exercise suppress mTOR. So um, just thanks for doing that work. I think it's led to all kinds of innovations in understanding and nutrition and and anti-aging and exercise and it's it's really foundational work, which is really cool. Thanks. Now, uh, I have uh, some more questions. Um, in my book on aging, I had seven, pillars of aging, like things that we know, pathways we want to we want to maintain so we can be youthful. And in your book, you had this concept of pillars as well, but you had five pillars of longevity. Can you walk me through those five pillars so people who hear the show can get a sense of how you're looking at aging? Because you've studied it for 30 years. <laughs> I want to right. know. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, one is, is for sure the genetics of aging. Uh, and the basic research, like what I just mentioned, right? So what controls the lifespan of all organisms? And is there a longevity program? And can you switch that program? Because now you take advantage of what I call 3 billion years of research and development. And you basically say the, the organism already has something, there, a prog- an alternative program that they can go to that can already extend the lifespan. So the question is, how do you get in there? Like, is there like an hibernation-like state that, for humans uh, that you can switch to, and how do you get in there, right? Or is there a regenerative mode in humans that you can get to and how do you get there? So the basic uh, organisms uh, um, and the research on longevity in this what we call model organisms is very essential. The other one is, of course, epidemiology, right? So um, studies of l- l- a large population, what I was mentioning earlier, what happens to people that fast for a certain number of hours, whereas you know, a few years ago we published on protein, uh, what happens to the Americans that eat low protein versus those that eat high protein? And, and is there an age-specific effect? You know, and so we, we published that, yeah, the low protein was better up to a certain age, but not after 65. Then after 65, the moderate protein intake w- w- was better. Th- thank uh, you for that study, by the way. That was part of the recommendations in my anti-aging book. It was based on, and I did reference your, your study in the book. <laughs> so oh, well thanks. done. Yeah, <laughs> Good yeah, finding. Thanks, thanks. Yeah. And uh, um, yeah, so that, that epidemiology, large population, because then you bring, bring in the math, right? The, the, the ability to do statistics uh, and use math to, to make conclusions. Uh, then clinical trial, randomized clinical trial. Like I, I always cite the one by Astruc and, and colleagues in Spain. You know, you take 7,000 people, uh, you put them in either a low-fat diet, and there's always been this fight, right? Low-fat versus mm-hmm. high-fat and so there's 7,000 people either on a low-fat diet or on a high olive oil and nuts diet, and you wait five years, and then you say, you know, in that case, they showed that the olive oil and nut-consuming people had less heart attacks and, uh, and live longer. Um, and so, yeah, so that's a very good uh, um, study to uh, publish in the New England Journal of Medicine, by the way, uh, that tells you maybe a very low-fat diet, if it is olive oil, is not such a good idea for people that um, have cardiovascular disease or are at high risk for cardiovascular disease. And uh, uh, so, uh, and another pillar is the centenarians, right? So what about, what if you go to Okinawa or in certain regions of southern Italy, whether it's Sardinia or Calabria or Loma Linda or, or lots of other places, you know, what, uh, what do they do? You know, what do they eat? that makes them uh, uh, get to 100 so frequently. Uh, so I think that's a very probably one of the most important uh, pillars just because uh, uh, it, it, it brings in, I think, a, a major safety factor, right? So if all these population have this in common, 
So if all, most of them or all of them have a vegan plus fish or a vegan plus a little bit of meat diet, it probably is not bad for you, right? At least we can say that. Now, did they make them live to 100? Well, it's more complicated than that. Most of them seem to have, uh, regardless of the story we hear, stories we hear, most of them seem to have a genetic component, right? So they, they have the right diet, but they're also genetically predisposed to, uh, to get to, to uh, a very long uh, lifespan. Yeah. And, uh, a, uh, a guy who's been on the show, James Clements, flew around and collected genetic data from a hundred and something people who are all over a hundred <laughs> to get the genetics into a lab to be able to figure out what are some common genetic markers there uh, that's been influential. I forget who he worked with on that, but uh, yeah. there's definitely a genetic component. Have you seen the studies that say the other component is uh, poor record keeping and high taxes in some of those areas that there's some amount of fraud? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, most areas, actually, have, uh, have a large amount of fraud. I always remember the Vilcabamba. You know, everybody used to ask me, oh, what about Vilcabamba in, in Ecuador? And, uh, um, and then I uh, finally I sent some journalists, and this was world famous for the centenarians. But then I was talking to my colleagues, because we do research in Ecuador, uh, and they said, you know, this is all made up. And uh, so the people there will tell the journalists whatever they want to hear, so that the journalists keep coming. So I sent some people from the television, from an Italian television, to check, and there was not a single centenarian in uh, in Vilcabamba. Right? So this is very, uh, very common that um, people exaggerate. They may take the identity of their father uh, or mm. uncle, um, you know, for whatever reasons, right? And uh, maybe to get their pension, and, yeah, um, inheritance and then, taxes and whatever. Yeah, then uh, or yeah, or inherit whatever, and. Uh, um, yeah, so I think it's it's very very common, uh, and it it still doesn't say we shouldn't study people who are actually older. And there's some pretty well validated ones where my percept perspective is that there's at least one person that we are pretty darn sure is 120 years old. So that's our current basically top level. And like, how do we beat that over the next hundred years so that that becomes more of a mid level? If you put on your hat a hundred years from now, would how old do you think the oldest person on Earth will be? That's a tough question. Um, I think that, um, unfortunately, maybe, or fortunately or unfortunately, I think technology is going to take over in the next 50 years. And I think bionics is going to take over in the next 50 years. And I think uh, it's going to be a very different world. I, I, I don't even think that, um, and I could be wrong, you know, usually it takes us longer to get there. So it may be 200 years and not a hundred. Um, but I don't even think right now, whatever we're doing is going to be that relevant for 200 years from now. Uh, I think it's going to be a, a very different, um, a very different, uh, approach, right? And it's going to be, uh, an approach that it has to do m- much more with memory and memory transfer and, and all kinds of crazy things, you know, but, uh, yeah, I, I imagine that's that's a world of uh, of uh, one to two hundred years from now. Uh, it's not the world that um, you know. It's not going to be modifying Tor or or PKA. Uh, it could be. Um, it could be that one of us uh, identifies a way to reprogram. You know, I always say, can you reprogram a mouse to make it uh, live as long as a um, a um, you know a naked mole rat? I say, yeah, my favorite yeah. spirit animal. Right? Yeah, so you go from two <laughs> to three years to thirty years, 
uh, yeah, that's possible, right? That that's possible that we we can turn some of the programs on, um, and those programs could could revolutionize a lifespan. But I think it'd be in parallel with some of the more crazy science fiction uh, things that are un- unavoidably gonna gonna happen. So you're you're thinking the oldest living person a hundred plus years from now will be a cyborg. I think that it. I, I would be shocked if in thirty or forty years, where most people are, um, before we die are not going to be part uh, part human and in part uh, something else, right? And we already have that, right? So the pancreas and and all kinds of uh, uh, you know artificial hearts, right? So yeah. so we already have a lot of that, and it's just hard for me to. And I'm not endorsing it, I'm not, but. I think it's hard to imagine that um, that we're not going to use that more and more and more. It's much easier to build things, right? And now, of course, when you get to a brain or, or a liver, it's much more complicated. But but for sure, even in the next fifty years, uh, I think that we're going to see a lot of bionics and a lot of uh, parts being introduced. And and you know, rightfully so. I mean, somebody is waiting for a kidney transplant. Uh, uh, why not use an artificial kidney? You know? um, and um, and I imagine the technology every year is going to get better and better. And and so, uh, yeah. I, you seem I concerned, be... though. You, you, like for better or worse, I, I hear a lot of trepidation in your voice. Uh, what's scary about that to you? Well, um, you know, I I, I think it's um, is the um, abandoning who we are right so and that that's got to be a scary thing to anybody right and 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 then you want to as we're um, as we are you know investing in technology we have to ask the question is is all this technology i mean the atomic bomb right so but the atomic bomb in a small like a very small uh example compared to what this could be right this would be much much worse right uh, so that's what I'm worried about, right? Where we our inability for the first time in history to control where it goes, right? Not so much what we can do with it, but are we going to be in control of it? And that's the scary part, right? Personally, uh, the, I hope Facebook's in control of it so that my ocular implants can get malware. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe if, if it was uh, Facebook, maybe. But uh, uh, you know, as, as 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 systems are are starting to um, uh, to learn, you know, to self learn, um, you can only control that up to a certain point, right? And at some point, that self learning uh, process is going to take into something that can decide for itself, right? And this so you're exactly worried about the, Skynet. Yes. Yeah. So, so um, I'm worried about you know human beings losing control of of the technology and the technology being in charge of the technology, right? So that's yeah. that's my my big concern. Yeah. Well, coming out of Silicon Valley as an actual computer hacker, one of the reasons that I named it biohacking is that generally hackers are the people who try to take back control from the big companies. You know, we, we we have Linux and open source operating systems which run most of the internet now not closed source big companies. And I'm hopeful the future of biohacking is relatively transparent because we have a community of, of people who are paying attention to these things. And I'm, I'm still hopeful about a positive future, but yeah, it could go dark. I'm 100% with you, Walter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and I'm not, I'm, and, and great. I mean, that's exactly what we need. We need a lot more of that, right? So who's, yeah. who's regulating this and what is going to be our, our plan to... Uh, 
to to fight this, right? So to to make sure it doesn't go that way, or it goes in a positive way, not in a in a we lost control way. Yeah, and we've got to define our humanity so that we can maintain it. And it's such a mushy concept right now that you know being able to decide what that means and what we want it to mean. And these are huge philosophical questions that go beyond just life extension. So I'm, I love it that you're thinking about this in the context of longevity. In fact, it's, it's really refreshing <laughs> to hear where your mind is on it. Well, I, I mean, I, I come, I think, you know, as a, I come as an 18-year-old that wanted to live forever, right? Uh, I mean, that's how I got started, right? And, and then, uh, you know, I, I always say I heard the story, but I, I never heard it from Roy Walford, uh, but I heard he was going to freeze himself. And then I heard he also took himself off the list to be frozen, right? So at some point, Walford, like myself, you know, it went from, I want to live forever to, I'm not sure anymore. And, yeah. uh, uh, and maybe, uh, yeah. So I don't know yeah. why and, and if that's a correct story, but that's what I was told. And so, um, I wouldn't be surprised if it's true. And, uh, that he went from, uh, from that state of mind to a very different state of mind as he was getting in his sixties and seventies. I have often said that I'm going to live to at least 180, but the reality is I'd like to die at a time and by a method of my choosing. <laughs> so if I'm done, I'm done. And I, can, I have the freedom to do that. Right. Um, sure. I mean, and I'm the same way, of course, you know, so, so yeah, I, I would definitely like to have that option, but, um, but it's just, uh, um, I think that, um, it, it can get more complicated than we appreciate, uh, uh, but certainly, yeah, 180, I think it would be something that most people will say yes to. I, I always remember, I asked my mother, right, uh, maybe 20 years ago. And I said, and I expect, she's very religious. Uh, and I said, well, would you want to live to, I forget what it was, 200 or something like that. And I was sure she was going to say, no way, you know, because of the religion. And she said, of course, you know. And then she said, you know, because I'll, I'll be able to see your, your kids grow up. And, you know, so that, mm-hmm. it was really interesting. You know, from such a religious person uh, to hear that she will want to live to 200 uh, because of, you know, feeling like she's living now when, when maybe she's got four or five generations that she can uh, watch and, and then she's, she's ready to go. So, you know. I, I'm really hopeful, Walter, that the longevity movement, and you've played a major role in it, but it's going to enable us to have an epidemic of wisdom. where We have people who've been around long enough to have figured out a lot of the stuff in life, like you're saying Roy did as he aged, uh, where we, we attain some wisdom, we learn some things, and we have enough energy to share it so that we can maybe steer the ship a little bit better than we have before. Because if you know people start losing their faculties in their you know, late 60s, Right when you probably figured life out when you were 16. <laughs> and then, you know, you don't have much time to pass that on. So we end up doing these, you know, waves of change that doesn't always go in the right direction. But if we have people who are, hey, you know, we've seen this three times before, it, it's all right. Here's how we're going to navigate it. It feels like we could actually do a better job as a species. I mean, do you look at longevity as, you know, maybe a something that's going to support the planet versus put a further burden on it? Yeah, I think that, um, there is no doubt. I always talk about 110 healthy, and 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 Roy was used to talk about 120 healthy. Uh, so I think it's a very good goal, you know, uh, to to get, uh, you know, if we could get. And I always say I don't think we're gonna get um, the planet to be 110 healthy. I think we're gonna get the people that follow all the all the things they should follow to get to 110 on average healthy, right? So so that's a goal, right? A lot of people are gonna keep smoking and doing whatever they want. And they're just going to probably keep uh, about what they got already right now. But then I think that 
uh, yeah, for the group that um, for the group that wants to 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 get there, there's going to be ways to do it. And you know, and of course, some people are going to die earlier, some people are going to die later. Uh, but that that is reasonable to start thinking about 110 average lifespan, uh, with most of it lived healthy um, as a goal. Do you ever get life insurance companies who call you and say, I want the data so that we can actually figure out who we should or shouldn't sell life insurance to? What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. They don't call me, but uh, um, they are certainly uh, working with us. I think now... uh, at least some of the biggest ones are starting to work with us in, uh, in starting to getting aligned with uh, um, with the, the patient's health, right? More the health insurance company than the life insurance insurance company. But uh, um, so so I think that yeah. So that's uh, the, the the life insurance companies uh, are uh, um, are also aligned uh, with with the health insurance companies. I, I would say, but. Uh, yeah, so um, we're starting to work with health insurance companies in looking at um, how to, instead of reimbursing whatever uh, problem, uh, disease uh, cost uh, somebody has, uh, can we avoid that? Can we think about, you know, um, getting to 100 healthy or 110 healthy? And, and, and in the past, surprisingly, it wasn't like that, right? So the health insurance companies were working on we're just uh, reimbursing whatever it costs and, and charging people for it, right? So, so now I think that's moving, and soon enough we'll move more into um, here's the here's what we reimburse, and uh, if you can uh, keep everybody healthy, uh, then you can you can be you know wealthier as a clinic or or as a doctor, uh, or and make uh, and and keep more of the of the funds. I uh, I love that. I'm I'm really hopeful that we start getting uh, a more normal and science based situation there. I bought some life insurance a few years ago, and and they're like, "We're not going to sell you life insurance." I'm like, "Why not?" I said, "Well, you you had this really advanced cardiac risk profile done." I said, "Yeah, but it showed that I was healthy." And they're like, "Yeah, but you must be worried about something because you got the, the lab data." <laughs> I'm, like, I'm not worried about anything. I'm tracking my progress. So we were coming from very different worlds, and they finally did give me a policy. Uh, but it took you know a lot of banging around and and sort of aggressive maneuvering so they would do it. And I, I feel like in the future maybe they'll look at the actual data versus some sort of mythical tables from the fifties. Uh, which is yeah, I mean, of course, them. a lot of people are resistant to that, right? So a lot of people don't want them to look at the data, right? So that. Especially in the United States, they're not going to have an easy time in in uh, doing that. But I think they cer- certainly want to do that, right? And both health insurance and life insurance company. 
I guess the trick is for some sort of health insurance or some life insurance company based in Mauritius or somewhere where there's no regulation to just sell out-of-country policies based on real data to people. Uh, I like that idea. Somebody start that company and sell me good life insurance that's actually going to be there. There we go. We'll just get around the regulation. Now, yeah, certainly it could be going the other way around. It could be that the very healthy people now go um, decide to release the data, right? Because that's the biggest problem. Once the, the very healthy people, so let's say the ones that invest in all the longevity uh, intervention, they could say, or oh, can we find a, or form even an insurance company that just treats us because we're, we're okay releasing the data, right? So if yeah. the group was okay releasing the data, then... Uh, then I think most insurance companies will probably go for it because to them it's just numbers. Uh, yeah. If they know you have a much higher risk, than, a much lower risk, then they don't mind. Uh, they don't mind lowering the the premium. That's a good point. I'm, I'm hoping that the data from your lab eventually makes its way into um, you know the, our decision making in a broader way. Right now, individually, we can use it, uh, but to use it for the systems of society is is one of the things I hope is of benefit for the future. So. Something else you've, you've said in your book that made me really happy was you said, without understanding how nutrients such as proteins and sugars affect cellular function, aging and aging damage and regeneration, it's difficult to determine the type and quantity of nutrients for optimal longevity. What have you learned about the type and quantity of nutrients that are important in different types of fats, different types of proteins, different types of carbs. Like what, what has come out of your science that tells us different carbs do different things and things like that? Yeah, so we learned a lot, right? So, so we, um, we can now usually go down to, let's say, a specific amino acid uh, um, or we can uh, um, define, for example, in our cancer studies, we define uh, what the level of sugar needs to be lower to for the cancer to start suffering um, and we're also starting to distinguish between different type of cells and what cell needs what right so uh, yeah so the mechanisms you know before you can get uh, something approved by the FDA uh, you have to have mechanisms and and here's no different right so if you don't understand the mechanisms uh, you really uh, walking in the dark and so you know because uh, you, we know that Say proteins control growth hormone, releasing hormone, which controls growth hormone, controls IGF one, uh, but uh, the, the protein also control the levels of insulin and they control insulin sensitivity. Uh, but then within the protein, it's not just about proteins, it's about, about the amino acid profile. Right. Amino acid profile can have completely different effect. So you can have a hundred grams of protein that are uh, um, biosimilar to 20 grams of protein, depending on the, on the source, right? And depending on what you're going after. Um, yeah, so it's, the same is, is true for fats, you know, what type of fats. Um, and, and not just in a simple way, because again, you have 100 different uh, types of cells, let's say, they can respond 100 different ways, right? So a liver cell can respond to something the opposite way as a muscle cell responds, right? So now if you're, if you're using the liver cell, maybe it's producing IGF-1 and insulin, and the, and the muscle cell is responding to IGF-1 and insulin. Uh, so they, of course, they have to have a very different role. And yeah, so this systems biology approach uh, is really fundamental. You know, if we don't use it, then we're just going to be lost, right? And I think soon enough, um, this is why I, I, I really am a promoter of the team of doctors together with molecular biologists 
I mean, the, the clinic, uh, my foundation has a clinic here in Los Angeles. We have one in Italy. And, um, and I think the, our approach has been like that. You know, you have a molecular biologist, you have a physician, you have a, a dietitian, uh, and, uh, uh, and the rest of the, the medical team. And, and they work together because now I think the systems biology is so complex mm-hmm. that the doctor it couldn't possibly try to handle all of this, including, let's say, microbiota, metabolomics. Uh, but just the strategizing based on, if you just l- look at the, the blood test from a regular doctor, uh, that already uh, has a, an immense uh, level of information about that patient that if you really bring it into systems biology understanding, you can come up with the opposite uh, treatment for that uh, person than, than a doctor will come up with. So for example, you know, uh, lots of doctors will say, put somebody on metformin. And then metformin, sulfonylurea, and then uh, eventually insulin, right? So, uh, of course, in, in our clinic, the doctor tries to do the opposite, just get you off. all. If you are a metformin, is there a way, working with the endocrinologist, we can get you back to non-needy metformin? And, you know, are, is there something that we can do to unlock that insulin resistance that was generated and you know, is it because of the the fat the liver in the the fat in the liver? Is it because of the fat in the visceral uh, uh-huh. area? And um, you know, how do we eliminate? Not necessarily make you lose a lot of weight, but make you lose whatever is responsible for the generation of insulin resistance, right? Yeah. So I think that yeah, systems biology and mechanisms are are have to be in the next five years. I'm not talking about fifty years. Yeah. In the next five years, they have to be at the center of decision making in the doctor's office. I love your view and I share it. Uh, it it's, we're right on the cusp. Is When it comes to metformin, many of my anti-aging friends uh, go back to when the first studies came out that said metformin uh, causes some genetic or epigenetic changes similar to what, uh, what a calorie restriction diet does. I think in 2003, Biomarker Pharmaceuticals was out talking about this. I met with those guys and I took metformin for three years because I thought I was going to make me live a long time. And then I saw some other studies and felt some effects around mitochondrial suppression. What's your take on metformin or occasional use or regular use as an anti-aging substance? Are you for it or against yeah. it or... Yeah, first of all, I'm very scared of uh, of near barzillai because if I ever say anything uh, negative about metformin, I get a call. <laughs> and near is a friend of mine at at, at uh, Albert Einstein uh, uh, College of Medicine, and he's the person leading the big trial on on uh, the Thames study on metformin. Yeah, so I think if you had to pick, if I had to pick two drugs, one would be rapamycin blocking Tor, and one would be metformin blocking yeah. both Tor, by the way, and the PKA path, the sugar pathway. And the um, and the protein amino acid pathway. So I think uh, I I think there's a lot of potential. We just have to wait and see. And I think Near is doing absolutely the, the, the right is doing it the right way. Basically saying there's enough data suggesting that this could be uh, benefiting people. Let's do you know like the asterisk study, thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the danger is very low, and so we should be able to uh, like for the vaccines and and everything else. We should be able to get a pretty good idea. Uh, awfully of not only does it benefit people overall, but is there a subgroup of people that shouldn't take it, right? Um, and yeah. Because it may may not benefit them at all. It might actually hurt them. And, and uh, yeah, so like you say, it's, it's an inhibitor of mitochondrial uh, respiration. It's an inhibitor of gluconeogenesis when the liver makes uh, 
you know, glucose, its own glucose because the brain needs it. And so, you know, what happens, for example, if you're in doing intermittent fasting or periodic fasting and you're taking metformin? Well, you could be in a lot of trouble, right? Yeah. And, uh, uh, and we've seen some, we've seen lots of mice dying like that. Uh, and the combination of fasting and metformin. And this is why I'm, in the clinical trials, you know, we, I'm always very, very scared of, of combining the two, whether it's cancer trial or diabetes trial that we're running. And we usually stop the metformin for the days that somebody's on a fasting. But yeah, as it goes out there, um, as it goes out there, um, you know, what, how many combinations are there on metformin plus that are negative or very negative as the one I just described? Maybe there is a 50 different things that, that you could do and maybe they're not very common things to do, but uh, uh, like fasting is not necessarily very common, but it is becoming very common, right? And so now, what if, you know, if you do it, if you, for 50 or 100 times, you combine metformin with fasting, you end up, uh, you know, in the hospital, if not worse, right? So, yeah, wow. that's the thing that, 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 that uh, we, we have to think about. Uh, but, hey, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it's a good idea to do the, the research. And I think at some point, I'd love to see uh, maybe a form of rapamycin that does not cause hyperglycemia because rapamycin, unfortunately, causes uh, the blood glucose level to go up. Uh, so hopefully, um, some studies will be done trying to avoid this, uh, this side effect of rapamycin. It, it's interesting. I, I think that for people who want to use metformin, the likely lowest risk path is use it once or twice a week on days where you're not doing heavy exercise because it inhibits your ability to benefit from exercise and don't do it on a day during a fast. And if you want to do that and get some benefits, there might be some in there. And that seems safe. I think taking it all the time for anti-aging is, I, I did do it for a while, but I don't think it's necessarily something we know enough about yet. But I think I'm in the minority of anti-aging extremists. Yeah, also you have to think of something else, you know, whether it's rapamycin uh, and targeting our own pathway uh, or, or metformin. I always was very scared about intervention at the core of life, right? Mm -hmm. So if you look at the TOR pathway and you look at the PKA pathway and the RAS pathway, I mean, they're at the center of everything, right? And, and so the question is, um, you know, I always think about, the, I have these car analogies, I love car analogies. So if you take a car and you say, why don't you just poke holes through it until, or block things, you know, I just randomly block things until I get something that gives me a benefit. And, and, uh, um, but then the question would be, okay, you're probably going to find something like that, right? The question is, would you want to, let's say, block some uh, electrical wire in the car uh, for the life of the car? And, and what is the consequence of that? Or, you know, pipe, take a pipe in the car and you block it. Uh, well, I say, you know, you, you want to make a car better you have to be better than the engineers that made it in the first place, right? So you, you want to take a car that is already sophisticated, you, you just don't block things. You go in and say, okay, I, I want to understand, I'm going to take 20 years to understand how this car was built, and then I'm going to improve it, right? But, and I, I may get this effect that, that you will get by blocking the pipe, but also I will avoid the long-term consequence that the car is going to overheat, uh, you yeah. know, two years from now, and then blow up, right? Or, or you, 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 you damage the engine. Yeah, so I'm, I'm very concerned about, I mean, uh, pharmacology is extremely sophisticated and extremely unsophisticated, right? It's extremely sophisticated because it's, it's very hard to, you know, be, be able to find a drug that targets, let's say, TOR pathway or PKA or whatever. But it's very unsophisticated because it just goes in there 
and it just blocks it all, every cell, every cell type. And, um, and yeah, so I think yours is a good suggestion. If you're going to have to go that way, uh, try to, you know, don't block this pipe all the time. Uh, try, try to let it, let it work most of the time. And then once in a while, yeah. you, uh, you can you block it. But even that, like what you and I are saying, it's fairly unsophisticated. At some point, we want to know why exactly is metformin, you know, doing what it is doing. And how can you replace the metformin with something that does not have those type of side effects and dangers? And uh, yeah, so that's that's a question, you know. And I will argue that fasting, at least periodic fasting and some other forms of fasting are starting to get in that category, right? Um, They don't need to be done all the time. They can be done periodically and they can achieve uh, uh, all of it or a lot of it without, so far, without any side effects that we see. Eventually, we could see him, but uh, I think by being very, very careful in the way we approach it. Uh, so, for example, if you look at our fasting-making diet, people say, you know, why don't you have less carbohydrates in there? Why don't you have less sugars? And I say, I don't want to have less sugars in there. I mean, it's very little sugar. But, we, you know, should we go even lower? I don't want to do that because I want to make sure that we don't have these back-and-forth extremes, right, which even though I don't have any evidence now for her, that they may hurt people in the long run, I'm afraid that one day we'll find that out. So I want to avoid the possibility. I don't want to put anybody out of a thousand, not even one in a thousand, in the situation where I say, you know, I should have thought about this. I should have thought about the fact that one person in a thousand, because, you know, if it's, a, let's say, 10 million people, one in a thousand is a lot of people. Uh, yeah. So, so that, that's how we're thinking that, um, that uh, we, we should be sophisticated enough in the approach that, um, nobody um, gets the side effects. It, and I think some of the side effects you see from these drugs are, gonna, are not going to be one in a thousand. I think they're going to be much, much higher. The, the car analogy is really fitting. If you look back at, at the history of hacking, <laughs> some of the first modern-day hackers were people who would build hot rods. And they did this to get, around, to get away from the cops <laughs> during Prohibition in the U.S. So they would take a car... And that was relatively simple back then. And they would study it and they'd figure out how do I make it go faster? And then you fast forward. I used to, years ago, I, I had a BMW and I had it serviced at the, the Dynan garage. Dynan makes racing cars. So you take your car into a racing car mechanic and it is noticeably faster and better when they're done. These are the people who did the work right. But when you do that, you also have to be on an aggressive maintenance schedule for the car. Because otherwise the car falls apart because you're running it hotter. And it feels like when we're doing more longevity uh, work that it does take more maintenance if you're going to be tweaking with pathways. But the returns are, you know, all the time you have more energy in a car that stops better and accelerates faster and all that. But if you don't do the right maintenance stuff, uh, we don't get there. And I feel like to your point, systems biology is what's going to give us the maintenance schedule for our race car, whether it's a Honda or not. Does that seem accurate? Yeah, it seems very accurate. But the, the the problem, I think, is the sophistication. If you look at a car, it's extremely, extremely simple. Even the space <laughs> shuttle, you know, is yeah. extremely simple compared to a human body. So when you got to go in and fix millions of components, if you think about it, uh, then you have to say, right now, I better use something that has been around. So I always use the example of if you cut yourself, can you imagine if we had to repair a cut with technology? You know, then you have to bring in stem cells and you have to bring in epithelial cells, et cetera, et cetera. 
instead of letting you know the body fix itself and two weeks later you let the the, the body do the do its job and and the wound is fixed right so yeah so i think it's it's it, it's for the for the short in the short term and this is why i like so much fasting we let the we let those three billion years and we let the programs develop in in history do their job we just have to learn how they work so that we can point them in the right direction right so essentially uh, so this is why we could take a a mouse and damage the pancreas and they become type 1 diabetic and then we start the fasting making diet refeeding and we see that there is an embryonic like program that starts and these cells in the pancreas are, are turn into you know the same type of cells that were there when the when the mouse was first born and they start regenerating the pancreas right and and it's really uh, an incredible uh, a program but you know imagine if we had to do that with technology just by inserting all the cells. Wow. Um, you're looking at a 50-year project just to get what we were able to do with the fasting-making diet and refeeding. I, I love that analogy. Yeah, it, it would be so challenging to re-engineer that, but we're going to get there. It's just a, a question of when. Right, let's let's go into a couple audience questions. We, we, the Upgrade Collective is a group of people who are really interested in, in biohacking and they've studied my books or they are studying my books and it's a vibrant community. So I'm really stoked on these questions. Um, what we'll do is you and I will be quiet uh, while Diane asks her questions so we don't get any echoes. And then uh, once she's done, we'll put her on mute and then we'll answer it. Diane, you ready to go? I'm ready. Can you hear me? Are you okay? Can you both hear me? Okay, great. So first of all, thanks for all your work, Dr. Longo. You're amazing. Um, here's a question. Why can't humans use anti-appetite prescriptions like Fentermin to help with our fasts, especially if somebody's really obese and this is something that they're having a hard time handling? Um, does it maybe interfere with the pathways that lead to autophagy or mTOR? Or is there a molecular issue that makes it harder and it doesn't work? Yeah, I can tell you we just finished two trials, uh, one on hypertension subjects and one on diabetic subjects. Most of the subjects were overweight or obese. Uh, we had very high compliance. Uh, and this was done both in Europe and the United States. In fact, uh, one of the studies was done in Tennessee. Um, so, yeah, I would say uh, we're going back to what we just discussed with David uh, about the, the poking a hole through a car. Uh, some of these drugs uh, uh, are, are probably to be avoided. And, uh, but I understand in some cases, uh, there may be no options. And so if there are no options, then, uh, then drugs, uh, are okay. The, the right type of drug. So I don't know enough about this appetite, uh, suppressing drugs to, to, you know, uh, tell you, um, you know, can they interfere with the fasting? I think they just are probably to be avoided at all costs, unless you really need them. Right. So unless that's the only way. That you're going to achieve uh, the effects, um, and um, so yeah, I would say uh, that that's probably a safe way to go. I, I really, I really like that answer. Thank you, uh, Cass. Uh, are you up for asking your question on the air? Okay, um, I wondered, Mr. Longo or Dr. Longo, um, with regard to the COVID nineteen vaccine that so many people are getting shots for currently 
Do you agree that this is the proper way to go? Are you going to get the vaccine or do you already have it? If so, why? If, if not, why not? Thank you. Yes, yes. So I'm vaccinated. I got two, uh, two of the Pfizer uh, vaccines. Um, and the answer is obviously yes. Uh, why? Because uh, COVID-19 is a very scary virus. And, um, and that's uh, the danger is really whatever minimal danger there is from the vaccine, uh, there's a very big danger from the, from the virus, even for younger people, but especially for those that are older. So there is really, if you look at the numbers, there is really no doubt about it. Uh, uh, the sooner people get the vaccine, the, the quicker we be out of this, uh, you know, very historical moment, yeah. Do you have any concerns about you know, the the poking holes in a system uh, sort of thing, uh, where there's we haven't done this kind of vaccine before? And and I, I by the way, I agree with your thing. You know, the, there's definitely risks from the virus that are known and and you know relatively large, not as large as Ebola by a long shot, but there's there's real risks and you know, long term um, mast cell activation and things like that. Um, there's less data about the vaccine, but the data we have says it's lower risk than. Um, uh, than the virus itself, but are you worried about the the long term aging effects of vaccines or anything like that? And this is not a pro or an anti vax show. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't have to be polarized. It's a science show where we're curious. No, no, I, I understand. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm very worried about any any uh, intervention, especially an intervention that is uh, that is uh, uh, going after the immune system uh, now, especially in an era where autoimmunities are everywhere and they're going up very very rapidly not just autoimmunities, but also inflammatory diseases. Um, so yes, so that's very unfortunate that we don't have an extra body of control that says, um, you know, even if I give you a vaccine, and this could be the, let's say, the flu vaccine, right? Let's forget about COVID, but say, what, who's, who's watching to make sure that whatever we get injected all the time are truly, not, are truly optimizing our health span? Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think that, you know, the clinic in, in, in Los Angeles that we have, we call it L-SPAN medicine. Right? So our goal, whether it's a dietitian or a nutritionist or a physician, is to I'm not treating you for what you have today. I'm treating you to make sure I optimize your chances to make it to 110 healthy. Uh, so I don't want to. And of course, with COVID, I have to also worry about you're going to make it to tomorrow. Right. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so I can take more risk because. This is really putting you in uh, in such a dangerous position that, you know, having had you know three or four FDA approvals related to this, uh, really uh, minimizes the acute risk. But we still have an uncertainty and long term risk, and that's just very unfortunate that that the CDC et cetera are not looking at uh, you know what are the lifelong consequences of they say the flu vaccine every year and maybe they are you know and if they are that's good but we we like to hear more about it because if they are nobody's ever heard that i never heard a a comment about this yeah very well put rational response and i want everyone listening to the show it's okay to choose to get vaccinated because you look at your risk profile it's okay to say i want to know like like there is no good or bad we're all doing our best 
uh, here. And so don't be judgy of people who choose to do something different than you. Like, like we're all, we're all working through it and, <laughs> and we're all making our best decisions and this should not be a political thing. It is simply a question on, on the science thing. Uh, so like, I don't do polarization about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, am I particularly my purpose is to get people to 110 healthy, right? So yeah. without, uh, you know, without worrying about uh, the, the, the ideology behind it. There you go. Uh, and we, we need a lot more thinking like yours uh, in the world today. Another question is coming through, but I can't tell who it's from um, uh, in, the, in the Upgrade Collective because of our interface here. Have you looked at using alpha-ketoglutarate, AKG, or at, with vitamin C with yeast longevity? Is that, a, is that a part of what you're doing? I've been seeing a lot of anti-aging about that as well. I actually prefer OKG to AKG, but have you looked at those pathways at all? Uh, we, we are certainly looking at the pathways. We have never uh, supplemented alpha-ketoglutarate uh, uh, or anything uh, like that. Um, you know, again, we, we, try to, um, we try to be much more upstream, right? So, uh, uh, because... If you interfere with the cells at the level of some of these molecules, you may not get the full reprogramming effect. Right? So this is why we really like the growth hormone, receptor growth hormone level signaling, because it's what I call the master regulator. Well, of course, we now have people that we follow down in Ecuador. They have mutation in the growth hormone receptor. So it means like they, they, they're, they're almost as if they had very little growth hormone activity as adults. And, uh, and they, we show they have much less cancer, rarely uh, develop diabetes, cognitively they're younger or much younger than you expect them to be. Uh, and now we're about to publish a new study on, on cardiovascular disease. And let's say that that's also not negative. So yeah, I really like looking at these master regulators uh, rather than looking down almost at the end. alpha ketoglutarate is really almost at the end of, the, of that pathway, right? Um, so again, you know, it could be very good for one cell type. It could be very bad for another one. And sometimes it could be, let's say, feeding some cancer type cells and it could be killing some other cancer, uh, cancer cells. So yeah, uh, uh, again, uh, uh, the, the focus on the, on the evolutionary, um, on the pathways that have evolved for the purpose of changing longevity uh, is probably the best one. Really, really good answers. It sounds like more research is needed on that one. And a new study just came out in the last two weeks that showed arginine supplementation was actually causing more harm than good. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going through that and writing it up. I don't know if you came across that yet, but I'll share that with the Upgrade Collective. I'll put it on my blog. Uh, so it also has some good sides with nitric oxide and things like that. But again, like you're saying with systems biology, you know, pros and cons, and maybe you should do it once a week, not every day. And it seems like for a lot of these things, it might be occasional interventions, just like with fasting, you don't have to do it every day. And you're, yeah, and I, and that's yeah. where the, you know, I, I haven't looked at your pillars yet, but, uh, you know, that's where the multipolar approach, uh, comes, comes in, right? So you want to say, uh, is arginine supplementation, uh, uh, both, uh, uh, for example, is it extending the lifespan of a mouse? Is it extending the lifespan of a rat? Uh, is that uh, people epidemiologically, people that have a lot of arginine in their diet, do they live longer? You know, what about arginine-rich foods? What about the centenarians? Do they consume a lot of arginine-rich foods? That's what I think is, the, is a good way to put it together and say, do I do it or not, right? Well, uh, if, if uh, four out of the five pillars are negative, uh, you definitely don't want to do it. If let's say one is negative and, and, and three or four are positive, uh, yeah, that's probably 
a much safer uh, direction to follow. So I will assume if you do look at arginine, there will be no data uh, for most of these pillars, right? So you wouldn't be able to say, oh, arginine, so it'd be inconclusive uh, that, right. uh, you know, that arginine consumption in the food is making people, is associated, say, with a longer lifespan or, or, or less disease. I would, I would uh, be surprised if, uh, if you see pillar after pillar showing positive correlation with, uh, with mortality or, or, or let's say negative correlation with mortality. What are the, the top five supplements that you take or that you think are most helpful? I don't usually, I mean, uh, I take two supplements. Uh, and one is a, a multivitamin um, containing all the things that, and I take it every maybe three, three days or so. And the idea is to, is to plug holes, right? So, so let's say that I'm becoming vitamin D deficient. Uh, and if you get this every three days and, or calcium deficient, uh, it's probably going to plug that hole and make sure that uh, I never get a, develop a severe deficiency. Uh, and the other one I take if I don't eat a lot of uh, fish, uh, fatty fish, then it's the omega-3 uh, fish oil. Um, yeah, those are the two that, that uh, um, I feel pretty conf- confident about, yeah. So you're taking vitamin D without vitamin K2. It's interesting. And any reason you don't add K2 to it? Well, K2, I think the supplement I take is already. I don't take vitamin D alone, right? Oh, it's in your multivitamin. So I think that yeah, I think they're already in there. I assume it, they're already in there. But, yeah, make, uh, make sure because vitamin D without K2 tends to drive tissue calcification, which is not the direction we want to go. But when you have it with K2, it tends to keep the calcium in the bones, at least according to all the all the research I've I've done. So that's. Uh, um, I bet it's in there. If you're, I'm assuming you're taking a high-end multivitamin, so you should be fine. Yeah. Beautiful. Walter, thanks so much for your work in the world and academia and working on cracking the code of uh, of aging here. Uh, I think you're, you're one of the greats in the field. I'm grateful you were on Bulletproof Radio. Grateful you shared those answers with the Upgrade Collective and just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, thanks for having me and uh, great questions. Yep. Great discussion. If you guys liked today's episode, you know what to do. Uh, well, try intermittent fasting at least some of the time. Seems like there's some pretty good evidence for that. Don't have to do it all the time. And join the mission to live way longer than you're supposed to. I think we can all do that. And it's a lot of fun working on it. Uh, think, think about being a part of the Upgrade Collective because we're doing that together, ouropgradecollective.com. And you can find everything about Walter Longo's work by going to valterlongo.com, V-A-L-T-E-R, Longo, L-O-N-G-O.com. See you all in the next episode. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. 
Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.